Today is Pentecost Sunday, and the word Pentecost comes from the Greek Pentecoste, which means 50th. And so what was going on at this time, historically, was that the Jewish folks from all the nations had gathered in Israel to celebrate 50 days after Passover. Passover is when God saved his people from certain slavery and death in Egypt. And of course, Christ, the perfect Passover lamb, was crucified during the feast of the Passover, saving us from the certainty of slavery and uh, death uh, as a result of our sin. And so 50 days later, as the, the festival of Shavuot was being celebrated, the celebration of their deliverance, uh, the Holy Spirit comes and there is a massive global expansion of uh, the power of God as he indwells his people and the gospel goes absolutely global. Our scripture for today is Acts chapter 2 and I'll be reading some portions from this 1 to 35 and uh, 1 to 24 and then 36 through the end. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place and suddenly there came a sound from heaven like a rushing mighty wind and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And then there appeared to them dispersed tongues as of fire. And one sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak with other native tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together, and they were confused, because everyone heard them speak in his own language. And they were all amazed and they marveled and they were saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? How is it that we hear, each in our own language in which we were born, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Persia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of of Libya and Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we, we hear them speaking in our own languages, the wonderful works of God. So that they were all amazed and they were perplexed and they were saying to one another, whatever could this mean? And others, mocking, said, they're drunk. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, he raised his voice and he said to them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and hear my, heed my words. For these are not drunk as you suppose since it's only the third hour. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it came to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And then on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in earth beneath. Blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, Him also being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified, and have put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that Jesus should be held by it. 
Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And Peter said to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For this promise is to you and to your children and to those who are afar off, as many as our Lord God will call. And with many other words, Peter testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. And then those who gladly received his word were baptized. In that day, about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. And then reverence and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. And now all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they sold their possessions and their goods, having divided them up among all, as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. This is God's word. Now before we celebrate this and just marvel in it and revel in it for a little while, I want to just give a quick comment for those of you who are with us at Redeemer regularly, exploring Christian faith, you're in a journey of faith, and you're wondering about this, and this is absolutely miraculous, and I want to just make a quick comment to maybe help you um, be thoughtful about why, as Christians, we don't just believe in something that is theological and spiritual, though we do. We believe in something that is theological and spiritual that's actually grounded in the historical. And in this passage that we just read, it says that thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people came to faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is, if you are a history buff or a sociology uh, student, um, if you're just looking back at human history, that should cause you to pause. Because people do not change overnight. People do not abandon centuries of tradition overnight. People do not leave their uh, ways of thinking and being and, and, and at the core of their you know, values and truths overnight. That's not, how, that's not what sociology teaches us. The study of humanities teaches us that change takes place over a really long period of time. You have to have a couple of outliers who say something that nobody agrees with, like, hey, maybe we should educate women. Maybe women are equal to men. We should give them educations. And then most people are like, absolutely not. But then there's a couple of people that go, you know what, we should probably think about that. And over the course of time, there's change, but it takes a long time. And here we are in 2022, where in our city, we all say, well, of course, Educate men and women, of course. But there's still regions in the world today where that is not the case. So people don't just change overnight. And what you need to just sit in right here, if you are exploring Christian faith, is that Jews and Greeks and Romans worshipped Jesus Christ, a man, as God, 
overnight. Jesus is not a legend that expanded over centuries until eventually this good doer prophet who sort of kind of went around like an ancient hippie caring for the poor people who eventually became thought of as divine. That's not what history teaches us. It teaches us that Jews and Greeks and Romans who did not would would have no business believing that God would ever condescend and be a man were worshiping Jesus Christ. And that is a point in human history that has historians and sociologists scratching their heads saying this is a massive phenomenon That happened in human history, and the question I want you to think about very thoughtfully is, why did that happen? As Christians, we believe the reason it happened is because thousands and thousands, sorry, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people saw the resurrected Jesus, because he spent 40 days walking the earth after his resurrection, revealing himself to people, not five or six or ten, hundreds. And then at this point in history, at Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was poured out, yes, it's a phenomenon, but you and I believe phenomenons. You've picked your phenomena, I've picked mine. This phenomena is that the gospel of Jesus Christ went absolutely global and it transcends cultures. You see, most religions, most world religions today, the majority of the believers of those religions are still in the ethnocentric areas of which those religions began. So there are Muslims all over the world, but most of them are still in the region of the Middle East where that religion began. There are Buddhists all over the world, but most of them are still in the geographical area which that religion began. If you go through world religions, that's how they are. We're global because we're they're, they're global because we are a global society, but most of most of the believers of the world religions are within the ethnicity and the geographical area of where those religions began. Let me ask you a question. Which culture is a Christian culture? Answer. There isn't one. Which geographical area in the world do most Christians live in? Today and throughout history. Answer. There isn't one. You see, this text tells us that there was an explosion of Christianity. It started in Jerusalem. Because, of course, we can't just do away with Israel's history. Jesus was the promised Messiah. Jesus was a Jew. God, when he incarnated into Jesus Christ, was born into the, the, the Jewish culture through which he would be the Messiah that would save uh, this small nation of people who were destined to death and slavery. They are a picture of all of us. And he, came, uh, and he came and he went to the cross. He lived the perfect life none of us could live. He died, he resurrected, he ascended. And as God, the explosion of Christianity cannot be pinned to any one culture. When all of these... Christians who came from all of the countries listed here and since that point in history exploded, they didn't leave their culture and then become a part of this homogenous thing called Christian culture. The Holy Spirit renews hearts, renews minds, and then renews and beautifies each and every culture. That the image of God is reflected and demonstrated in the humanities of every culture. So if you are exploring Christian faith, You need to just sit and pause at how the world has changed as a result of this explosion of the news of Jesus Christ, the goodness of his gospel that has uh, crossed uh, every culture, every uh, ethnicity, and that today there isn't any one ethnicity that is the majority um, because it's just continually shifting throughout all of history um, as we all come to faith in Christ and we are a part of a global cross-cultural, multicultural family of God, the people of God, whereby every single ethnicity 
beautifully demonstrates that we are made as image bearers in the image of God. So on Pentecost, as this all happens, many times we think of it as, or you've heard it talked about as, the birth of the church. And I understand what folks mean when they use that language, but that's not a particularly helpful way to think about it. Because this English word church comes from the Greek ekklesia, which means the called out ones. So God has always had the called out ones. And you see that vividly in Abraham since Genesis 15. God has always been calling his people out, calling them out of darkness and into light, calling them out of death into life, calling them out of wayward worship of their own wayward hearts or other gods or cultural gods, calling them out into glorious worship of him by his grace and into renewal. So what we have at Pentecost here, the Spirit is poured out, it's not the beginning of the called out ones, but for the first time in history, the Holy Spirit is not coming upon certain people for a certain task at a certain point in history, as was in the under the old covenant. Now in the explosion under the new covenant ushered in by Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection, the Holy Spirit is now indwelling all God's people for his global purposes. Uh, this amazing tidal wave of grace, which occurred at this point in history, which can never be repeated again, uh, in, in as much as the incarnation of Christ in the manger cannot be repeated, the cross cannot be repeated, and Pentecost cannot be repeated. There's nothing reserved in heaven that we got to pray that God will pour out one day. It has been poured out. He has been moving by grace. He will continue to move through you and I by his great grace. And we see that what we learn in Pentecost here is that God's grace continues to manifest all throughout human history um, through, the, through the, the power and the beauty and the mystery of his trinity. In Genesis, you get the creation and the plan for redemption by God the Father. In the cross, you see everything that's required for our redemption and the accomplishment of our redemption in God the Son. And here at Pentecost, we see this explosion, the application, the renewal, the rejuvenation of that redemption by God the Spirit. Just this beautiful outworking all throughout human history of God drawing men and women from every culture, every class to his saving grace. And this coming of the Spirit showcases at Pentecost God's heart to be with us from the beginning. It says that when they were in the upper room and they were praying, that there was, it, it was as though uh, the presence of God appears like flames of fire above those who are praying. And that's not like some new image that God's doing. That's actually very, fire is in a very old image. It's actually a temple image. It's a consistent image. If you read through the Old Testament, the presence of God was always associated with fire, or sorry, not always, but often associated with fire. At the temple, God's presence was always associated with fire. There was a pillar of fire. There was always fire, the presence of God at the temple in the Old Testament. And so here now we see the fire appearing above the men and the women praying in that upper room. We see now that they are now the mobile temples. That God is doing something consistent and yet new and profound and expansive uh, by working through uh, his people. So this God who is transcendent, who flung the stars in the galaxies, is also eminent, who cares about you and I on Monday and what you have going on on Monday. And he indwells us by his very power, his very presence uh, of the Holy Spirit. And uh, we see it showing up uh, here in... Uh, at Pentecost, and it appears this way, and it is just majestic and it is profound, enabling us to 
live into God's global purpose, which is to reflect him and his love and his wisdom and be bold uh, proclaimers of his gospel in the city. And as I've often said, to just reflect God in the same way that the, the lake, the still lake reflects the sky. This is what uh, the power of the purpose of Pentecost is as the church goes out. And so when the Spirit's poured out, they ask a really great question in verse 12. The crowds ask, what does this mean? So let's just ask the same question this morning. I mean, what does this mean? Uh, it comes in as a, a, a rushing mighty wind. And I think the first thing uh, that it means is that everything that we need, contrary to the message of our culture, is not inside us. <laughs> it's actually outside us. You see that the Spirit of God doesn't just bubble up from within the believers. Uh, it's something that's com- coming that we desperately need. <clears throat> and so the Spirit of God descends to unite us to Christ, the one who has ascended. And uh, I know that the idea that everything that humanity needs to heal our own ills is, is offensive because our narrative is like, we got this, and if we work hard enough and educate ourselves more and, and um, you know, fight for the right causes, we can heal the ills of humanity, but um, we will not do this. That uh, was an idea that was popular in the Enlightenment period, but I think that as we just check our news feeds and see that there's an endless catalog of ways that human beings continue to hurt each other and we have for thousands of years. But that argument that we can just educate ourselves into peace and harmony in the world is getting kind of old because we are faced with the problem of evil. And quite often, people will say to the, the Christian, they'll say, hey, preacher, you know, if there's a good God and he's so loving and great, explain the problem of evil. Well, I don't need to explain the problem of evil. If you've already decided that there is no God, you still have the problem of evil. So you explain the problem of evil. I'll just turn the scalpel and say, tell me, tell me how it is that after not generate hundreds of years of educating ourselves, why are we still shipping weapons around the world? Like, what's going on? You explain the problem of evil. God, from the beginning, has been writing his love and grace across the stars to catch our attention with his goodness and his love. He did it through the cross, which was no secret. He wrote himself into human history, which is irreversible. And then at this moment in, in, in uh, human history in Pentecost, where this massive expanse of belief in Jesus Christ and his resurrection resulted in not just people going around saying, hey, here's a new idea, believe it, but that they were fundamentally changed and then began to relate to the city in a profoundly countercultural way. The Christians went out and began to care uh, for uh, those in need in profound ways. Not only this, but they also began to give their lives away in profound ways. I was challenged by this just the other week. Last week, I was having a coffee with someone, and they said to me, well, it seems like if the church is supposed to be so loving and gracious and caring for the poor, they're not really the leading agents in that anymore. anymore. I mean, you can be an atheist, agnostic, Muslim. I mean, you can believe anything and be a person of great grace and generosity and care for the poor. So it seems like the church is failing and the church isn't the leading edge anymore. And when are they going to get that back? And I said to this individual, first of all, I don't know that the church ever needs to become the leading edge anymore because Jesus already changed the game. So you see, that work has already... Work has already been done in the sense that caring for the poor and the needy was not in the Greco-Roman ethos. That would have never risen out of there. Read how Aristotle cared, uh, talked about slaves. He talked about them like they were tools. If you read Nicomachean Ethics and you read the section on how to handle your slaves, they're, they're property. If you talk, read the section on women, property. Look at Jesus. 
You don't find that. What Jesus was doing, see, through, we are looking at the Bible through modern lenses, a lens which has already been fundamentally, radically shifted by the actual ethics of Jesus. It, it, so again, for the benefit of those of you here who might not be believers today, there's a historian, his name is Tom Holland. He's not a Christian. And he will echo what I am saying to you by saying the ethics... Uh, by which that early church was caring for the poor were so countercultural, it fundamentally changed the ethos of the culture. You don't find that in any other culture. You find it in the nature of Jesus. I know that seems like a, 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 like a, a really bold claim, but do your history, do your homework, and this is what you're going to find. This is where it fundamentally changed the world. So now, do Christians fail at being generous? Sure. Do, do churches fail? Yes. Do preachers fail? Absolutely. Will you fa- find that failure in Jesus? Never. And, and, and the world has already been changed. So now, whether you're a Christian, atheist, agnostic, Muslim, Buddhist, to care for the poor is something that we've all culturally accepted, which came out of the very heart of Jesus Christ. He's already changed the world. And so, the Spirit is given so that we will go out and and uh, not just live this life of love, which of course is core to the Christian faith, but proclaim the actual message of the gospel, which is what went out in every language um, this, this morning, on, on Pentecost morning. Notice that when the Spirit is poured out, it's not a private experience. It's not a private charismatic church meeting. It's a very public discourse. But they, they're hearing the mighty acts of God, the text says, in their own languages. They're, they're hearing the gospel being proclaimed, and it goes into the, uh, and it goes into the city. And I want you to notice that, I, I didn't read the text this morning, but if you go back to chapter 1 and read it, and you read the end of the book of Luke, that the 120 who were in that, in that room waiting for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, there's 120. So that means you've got the apostles, those who walked with Jesus, and then you've got, probably got believers there who didn't. Maybe didn't walk with Jesus, but maybe were physically followed and listened to the teachings of Jesus. You've got the 12 who had a special anointing because they saw the resurrected Jesus. And then perhaps you have some others who later perhaps had seen, but we would be speculating, so I can't build a doctrine on that. But my point is, in that room, you've got the most qualified and people that are probably would consider themselves barely qualified. But they're there, and they all get the same Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit doesn't come down and anoint the 12 apostles, but then the, you know, but then the other 100, you know, it's like, well, you guys get this other version. They're all anointed, and they all go out, and they all proclaim and preach. They, they proclaim it. The men and the women. Again, just think about this. I mean, it's 2022, and it's difficult to think about it, but just imagine, in the ancient world context, you've got women going out, Proclaiming the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. They're declaring the mighty acts of God and they're doing it in other languages. It's crazy enough that the men are doing it. That's already a phenomenon. But now you've got the women who are also participating in doing it. They're all doing this together. They're all anointed. They're all called to go out and to do this shoulder to shoulder gospel proclamation. And it is amazing. And people are, you know, there's two reactions and there are always two reactions. Some are absolutely blown away and mesmer- just, just their hearts are captivated and mesmerized by this message. And then others are just sort of scoffing. That's always been the two reactions. It'll always be the two reactions. But it is ab- just absolutely tremendous that there's not just one particular sort of a person that's anointed for gospel ministry. They all are. And they all go, go out and do it together. And they do it with this, this confidence. And then, of course, when the scoffers say they're drunk, let's just think about that detail for a quick second. Because Peter starts a sermon, 
by actually addressing that. He's like, hey, everybody, listen up. We're not drunk. It's the third hour. He starts there. Paul actually picks up on this metaphor in the book of Ephesians where he says, don't be drunk with wine. Be uh, filled with the Spirit. So um, let's just take a minute and think about this, like what they, what they, what they saw here. The thing is, the Bible, the Bible speaks against drunkenness because when you get drunk, your inhibitions go down and you can say or do or you know, all manner of things because your inhibitions are down that are not loving or humble or wise or reflective of the, uh, the wisdom and the love and the grace of God. So the Bible says don't get drunk um, because that can lead to all sorts of things. Uh, they're, not, they're not good or loving. The Bible calls debauchery, right? But the, but the thing about being drunk is the inhibitions come down. And when the, inhibition, when the inhibitions come down, when people are drunk, they get very bold. They can get very loud. Sometimes when people uh, get drunk, they get very happy. Some people get very joyous. Some people get very generous. Right? The round's on me, everybody in the whole place. Hey, man, what, how are you going to pay your bills tomorrow? I'm not worried about it. Come on. Who's worried about paying bills when we can all just have a moment of festive joy? In the Drunkenness does something to people. So I'm not trying to say that it's good in any way. I'm trying to say that there was a... When you're drunk, your inhibitions come down and you're less concerned with reality. But when you're filled with the Spirit, your inhibitions come down because you can stare reality in the face. Like, I can actually stare sickness and death and sorrow and tragedy. I can stare any of this in the face, but my inhibitions come down and I can be a confident and joyous and humble, bold proclaimer of Jesus Christ and why I, why I believe what I believe and why I have rest in my heart and my mind and why I have confidence in a world when it's melting and on fire. I, my inhibitions have come down. I'm not freaking out. I, when, when, when people have alcohol in their systems, they, the reason the inhibitions come down is they're thinking a lot less about themselves and a lot less about how they're being perceived. So Paul says, don't get drunk with the wine. That can lead to all kinds of terrible places. But he's using the metaphor, but if you're going to be filled, but be filled with the Spirit. Because when you're filled with the Spirit, which they are, which you and I are, the inhibitions come down. I'm not chronically focused in on myself and what's going to happen and how am I perceived. I can just boldly and confidently and, you know, winsomely give a defense for what I, what I believe in. And they go to the streets and it's not like two or three people go, okay, we think we believe. It's thousands upon thousands upon thousands. Why? Because the text says you, the Holy Spirit comes upon you and I to be witnesses. Many of you are... Okay, I won't say that. Some of you may be terrified of sharing your faith because you have thought to yourself that the Holy Spirit came to turn you into a preacher. And you don't want to do what I do, and you're like, kill me now. I understand that. But the number one fear is ostracism. Nobody wants to be ostracized. Nobody wants all eyes on them. That's why people hate public speaking, because frankly, more people would rather be dead than do what I do. So I understand that. But the Holy Spirit did not come upon you to be a preacher. It says witness. Not to be an orator. It says witness. Bearing witness. So, yes it is sharing your faith and giving an account for what Jesus Christ has done. His life, his death, his resurrection. 
Yes, it's giving an account for the transformative change in your life. But to be a witness, it's a, it's a fundamental change in the state of being. So you see, the, the outworkings of the Holy Spirit in the life of the early church wasn't that, they, wasn't that they just kept on going around preaching things in the street, but their lives were fundamentally the same and unchanged. It wasn't that they were masterful orators. It was that, if I borrow from uh, Roman antiquity, Tacitus wrote... People are flocking to the churches like children to candy because not only do they care for their own poor, but they care for ours as well. In other words, something is fundamentally changing these people where they're willing to just give their life away, whether it's their time or the resource or whatever. And I'm not asking you, and, and the scriptures are not asking you to deplete yourself so that you are somehow harmed. That would be ridiculous. But there is a radical generosity that happens when you and I are full of the Spirit. We become witnesses. We're willing to give... Uh, give of ourselves in this uh, profound way. I'm going to close the sermon today. Um, lots more can be said. And because I riffed off my notes, there's a hundred things I'll say next year at Pentecost. And I'll say Because um, <laughs> you guys will be like, land the plane, preacher. The spirit already came. We got it. Okay. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to close uh, today by having you think about this, uh, the, the image of fire and the implications of fire. When you get into uh, um, the, end of the, te- uh, the end of the text, it says what, what they did. They, they lived generously and with simplicity of heart. So let's look at this. Uh, fire does three things. Fire consumes, fire refines, and fire illuminates. So when the Holy Spirit filled that church and fills this church, God consumes some things. Some things burn away. Our God is a consuming fire, Malachi says. That means he burns away our love for sin, burns away our desire to, to live in ways that are contrary to the wise guidance of God's word. Just burns things away. Fire consumes. And so for those of us who are filled with the, with the Spirit, our prayer is, Oh God, would you burn away my disordered loves? But not only does fire consume, but it refines. So this is a beautiful and a powerful strengthening thing. That when, uh, when you put gold or a precious metal in a refining fire, you are burning away the impurities for the purpose of the pure substance to remain. So that's beautiful and glorious. That's why when Peter's preaching, he says, you see it in verse 40, I think it is. He says, be saved from this perverse generation. Again, for those of you who are uh, not believers this morning, you might say, well, that's offensive. How can I be calling me perverse? Perverted, perverted doesn't mean you're a sicko. It means something is crooked, something is askew, something is wayward. Okay, to be perverse means that something is being something is in, is living outside of its intended purpose. I have a very nice watch here. My sister gave me this watch, and I like it a lot. And if I was to use this to hammer a nail, that would be perverted. It was created for something. The creator of the watch was very intentional about the way that this was put together, and according to the way in which it was designed to be used in the way in which it, which it was designed. Is beautiful. But to hammer a nail with it is perverted. You did not just evolve and crawl out of some primordial soup for no reason with no creator. Regardless of how you believe, whether you believe that it took us 16 billion years to get here is not relevant. The, rele- the relevant point is that God is the creator and the author of all things that he created. He created you. And as the creator of life and the creator of all things, he came in Jesus Christ to renew you. And to live in a particular way, which is to worship him and enjoy all things, instead of worshiping all things at the expense of him, that's perverted. 
So fire consumes and fire refines. It refines us to that, to the worship of God. Lastly, fire illuminates. So therefore, his word then becomes a guiding force in our life. Because we love it, we want it, we want to be guided by it. Even when it illuminates things that we want and that we love and that we like, that the culture says it's totally fine, and God's word says it absolutely is not fine. There's a consuming that happens. There's a refining that happens. There's an illuminating that happens. And then where it led is where the text ends. It led to these, the people of God living in generosity and community and simplicity. They related to their material wealth differently. right? Those who had lots of wealth, they sold their stuff. It wasn't a mandate. They weren't commanded to do it. But they were just like, if there's need in the church, if somebody's suffering can't eat, I'm selling my stuff. We're taking care of them. Generosity. Able to give their life away. The second thing after generosity is community. Right? It says they're steadfast, they're in worship, gospel doctrine, breaking of bread. That's why you can't just be a Christian listening to a podcast someplace saying, I love Jesus, his church drives me crazy, so we're done with the church. What is that? That's a new invention. That's not what happened here. There is generosity, there is community, and then lastly, there is simplicity. That's amazing. They eat their bread with simplicity of heart. Oh my goodness. Imagine the liberation of that, to just live a simple life. You don't need the culture to tell you who you are. You don't need people to affirm you who you are. You don't need the letters after your name or your career or your salary or your house or your toys. You don't need anything to tell you who you are because your God has already told you who you are. You are His. Simplicity of heart. May we go into the city and may we be bold proclaimers of this gospel. May we minister because... In the, under the Old Covenant, when God wanted to get the world's attention, he set a bush on fire. Well, at Pentecost and ever since, when he wanted to get the world's attention, he sets his church on fire. Let's pray.